This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye-bye-bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. And good afternoon to the beautiful city of London. Charlie Pellet in once again for Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5 p.m. in the city of London, which means your weekend is well underway. We have got a lot of top stories to sift through. Jobs in the U.S., a new Fed chief, Apple surges, Venezuela seeking debt relief. A number of topics we'll be taking on throughout the hour. And joining us now from London, Anjali Warachate, who is is uh, with the uh, Bloomberg Markets Live team in London, Markets Live blogger. Cameron Kreiss in our New York studio, macro strategist for Bloomberg. Lots going on. We do kick things off with Venezuela, though. Tough day for emerging markets as well. Uh, first of all, Anjali, with you, is there an explanation or a theme as to what's happening with emerging markets? Well, uh you know, uh, we all know that uh, Venezuela is seeking to restructure uh, its global debt. It is not clear, though, at this point what uh, they plan to do. But as far as international investors are concerned, the only thing that matters here is whether this will result in a widespread contagion. Uh, if you look at the bond spread, maybe not. But if you look at the currency market, well, it seemed like there's concern there. Uh, at this point, I still think that uh, Venezuela is a contained problem, but it, that doesn't say that there is not you know, concern here and there about emerging uh, assets, especially those from countries with political risk. Yeah, it is not a technical term, so I won't put it on either one of you, but Venezuela is a mess, and that perhaps is putting it mildly. Cameron Kreis, uh, take us back in time, either short-term, matter of weeks, months, years. Why is Venezuela a mess, and how tough is it going to be for Venezuela to get out of that? Well, it's a mess because of the governing policies of the uh, Socialist Party that has been in place since 1999. Uh, Hugo Chavez, the previous president, was was obviously a bit of an international pariah. Uh, didn't get on particularly well with uh, with the United States, shall we say? And he made the decision when it um, when it became clear that Venezuela needed to access hard currency somehow to sell bonds. Uh, so essentially, he tried to borrow his way to prosperity, and that very rarely works and in this case uh, spectacularly it, it, it is not uh, you know it has not done so and I, I think it's interesting because historically whenever the Fed has put uh, interest rates up and engaged in a tightening cycle you've seen cracks appear in in weaker segments of the credit market and this would apparently on the face of it be the latest iteration of that and that usually filters through the rest of financial markets. In the case of Venezuela, though, it's so um, idiosyncratic. In a, in, a, in a sense, it's almost ring fence isn't the right word, but it's 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 hard to call it any representative of any sort of systemic issue because it's not what Ye Janet Yellen uh, has done that that's causing this. It's what Hugo Chavez and Maduro have done over the years. So, that, so that it is it, it is, and, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but correct me if I'm wrong. Would you agree with the statement that it is 100 percent? self-inflicted oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. without a question yeah. and I don't think there's any I don't <laughs> think there's anyone 
uh, who would dispute that. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn might actually, given some of the uh, <laughs> positive tweets he sent about the, the Venezuelan government over the years. But that's another issue entirely. But the other thing I'd say in terms of the rest of emerging markets, particularly on the currency side, uh, it, you know, we can't necessarily say that the South African rand is selling off because of what's going on in Venezuela. What, what we can say, however, is that there are idiosyncratic factors driving or idiosyncratic political risks in other markets. And when you see one blow up this spectacularly, uh, even if it's isolated in or even if it's self, you know, self-inflicted, in Venezuela, it perhaps makes you a little more sensitive to those idiosyncratic risks in the likes of Turkey and in South Africa, and perhaps you build a bit more of a risk premium of things going horribly wrong. Actually, is there a way out for Venezuela? If, if, or, and let me qualify that. Is there a way out for oil-rich Venezuela? After all, it just seems doomed to get worse. Well, uh, options that people in the market uh, are talking about include like selective default, which might have to happen, or maybe the country can launch a voluntary distress exchange. It's something that Uruguay did successfully in 2003. So let's see uh, what uh, they, they plan to do. But uh, I agree with Cameron that, you know, uh, even though it's con contained, but it kind of affects uh, sentiment of other emerging market assets uh, from countries with political risk. Yeah, the folks over at Capital Economics say a restructuring of Venezuelan debt is nearly impossible. Is is that your take and the take of your colleagues at Bloomberg News? Uh, it's complicated. It it will be complicated the way it uh, uh, is structured. So uh, I would agree with that 100%. Cameron, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. the issue here is that uh, the U.S. government has put sanctions on Venezuela. It means that U.S. entities cannot acquire any new Venezuelan bonds. So a restructuring, almost by definition, means they take the old ones back, the ones that you're still allowed to hold, and then they give you new ones to replace them. Well, you can give them back. But if you can give the bonds that you hold back, but if you can't take the new ones and they're not going to pay you any cash, it's kind of difficult to see how that's going to function efficiently. So Listen, when, whenever these sorts of things happen, markets almost always overshoot and they always overreact. And we've seen the yield um, on short-dated, even short-dated Venezuelan debt skyrocket. Uh, but it's nobody knows how this can play out, particularly because of these sanctions. What makes the whole thing really weird is that Maduro said, well, we're going we're gonna to make this one payment you know, you know, we're going to make this payment imminently, and then we're going to do all this restructuring. Now, the question is, why would he do that? And the natural, if cynical, uh, thesis or hypothesis is that all his cronies in the government have bought up all this short-dated debt at a discount, and now he's going to pay them off at par, and then he's going to stuff everybody else. Yeah, so was, it's, was, it's just a mess. I was going to go with a, perhaps a less cynical explanation, but yours certainly has merit, and that is that these perhaps perhaps, trying to talk to two audiences. One is the domestic audience in Venezuela. The other would be the international investment community. Yeah, and even on that, I didn't watch it, but apparently in his, his national broadcast re-announced this. He sort of faffed around for half an hour until, he, until I guess, they, to, give, to give international investors a chance to sort of get the heads up that he was talking and, 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 and tune in so that they'd be able to hear what he says. I, you know, I should stress that all this is an allegation or a, a rumor rather than rather than a fact, but it's 
given the history there, it's hard not to be a little cynical. Yeah, Angeli, how do you how do you see all this playing out? Thirty seconds to go. Any thoughts on how this might all end? Um, well, uh, maybe in tears, but uh, overall, I still think that the emerging market asset uh, is still you know performing well despite some. Uh, pocket of concern here and there because uh, Venezuela aside, you know, overall positive factors like ample liquidity, low volatility are still in place for higher yielding asset and carry trade. I mean, today we have a lot of, uh, uh, ev- this week we have a lot of event that point to liquidity is still, you know, uh, it's not going to be an issue for the emerging market. We have the Fed chairman that is likely to carry on with the current policy. We, uh, we, we will continue the conversation in just a moment. Anchali Warachate and Cameron Kreiss, uh, macro strategist for Bloomberg. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Charlie Pellet in for Jonathan Farrow on a Friday here, looking at an update here for the Dow. Uh, the S&P and NASDAQ, quite possible we will see records again in U.S. markets. Uh, the S&P up six now, 2586, uh, mostly an update for European equities. FTSE 100 up by one-tenth of one percent, ending the week at 7560, up today by five points. CAC in Paris up one-tenth of one percent. DAX in Germany higher by three-tenths of one percent. Uh, and the IBEX in Spain moving lower today by about one percent. We continue our Conversation with Anjali Warachate, Markets Live blogger out of London, Cameron Kreiss, macro strategist for Bloomberg uh, here in New York. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the UK economic data that we've been getting and perhaps what it suggests about the economy. Uh, Anjali Warachate, uh, take us through some of the numbers, take us through some of the latest data, and uh, what sort of shape is the UK economy in right now? Uh, today, data is quite positive. We have services data that uh, a beat expectation, market expectation. And that's a big deal because services account for around 80% of the UK economy. So no doubt then that the pound kind of recouped some lost uh, ground today after falling sharply yesterday. Uh, uh, so uh, yeah. you can say that uh, the pound uh, is up today for two main reasons. One is the services data that I mentioned. And secondly, uh, the BOE policymaker Ben Broadbent uh, said that the UK may need a couple more rate increases in coming years to keep inflation in check. And this is not consistent with a one and done uh, scenario. Yeah, that seemed to be very much the message that we got yesterday, correct? Yesterday, uh, Carney was so dovish that the market took his comments to mean that this is a, a one and done deal. Today, uh, what Ben Broadbent said is a bit different. Look like you know he think that there, there could be room for further rate hike. So that is supportive for the pound. But that doesn't change the bigger picture, though, uh, Charlie. Uh, that Brexit remains a critical factor to the rate outlook of this country. It remains the single biggest headwind to sterling. Yeah, Cameron, what's your take? One and done, or have things changed from yesterday to today? And is the BOE speaking yeah, with one voice? I, I don't see much of a change, to be honest with you. The, I mean, for sure, the services purchasing, the services uh, PMI was stronger than expected, but it's broadly in the, in the range that it's held all year. So I'm not sure if it tells us a whole lot. And we should also remember that it was only a couple of weeks ago that we saw a massive uh, decline in the in the retail 
uh, survey, which, uh, you know, perhaps has a more immediate, uh, you know, immediate impact in terms of, uh, in terms of touching, touching home. And listen, I mean, there's so much uncertainty about, about the, the, you know, the trajectory of the economy. I think it's, I think it's probably fair to say that they're going to tread very, very lightly, and we should perhaps look at uh, uh, Canada as a as a sort of an analog here, where the Bank of Canada decided to take back the emergency stimulus that they put in place. They'd cut rates a couple of times over the last few years. They've set now hiked rates a couple of times, and guess what? As soon as they sort of take that back, then the burden to actually tighten from where you were a few years ago becomes quite a bit higher, I think. And in the case of, obviously, the UK, as Angela mentioned, there is still this, this massive headwind of uncertainty from, from Brexit. So I find it very difficult to believe that they're going to be able to sustain more rate hikes yeah. uh, anytime soon. Angela, only about 30 seconds left, but if you could just address the Brexit issue and how that plays into the uncertainty surrounding UK rate expectations. Let me quote Carney's or uh, what he said yesterday. He said, Brexit decision is having a noticeable impact on the economic outlook of the UK. He summed it up. All right. Well, we will leave it there for the time being. Coming back, uh, we will talk more about what is happening uh, in terms of employment and what that means for global markets. A lot more to consider right here as the cable continues. Uh, Just an important data point just clearing right now uh, in terms of uh, actually closely followed by the oil industry, and that's the weekly rig count numbers that we get out of Baker Hughes. Uh, Rig counts down by 11 to 898. Uh, We are seeing the price of Brent uh, at 61.26, up by 1%. 1.1%. 1.1%. West Texas Intermediate in the U.S. higher by 8 tenths of 1%, 55 even right now on WTI. U.S. equities higher looking at records. Charlie Paladin for Jonathan Farrow on a Friday. And this is The Cable on DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Charlie Pelladin for Jonathan Farrow as the cable continues. Big question today, can investors, can the Fed get any satisfaction from the latest jobs report in the United States? Payrolls up a less than expected 261,000 in October. Where were the analysts? Where were the economists on that one? Jobless falling one, or does it matter, perhaps, is the better question. But the jobless rate down one-tenth of one percent, 4.1 percent, lowest since 2000. And we continue the conversation with Cameron Kreis here in New York, macro strategist for Bloomberg, and Anchali Warachate, Markets Live blogger in London. First of all, Anchali, the U.S. jobs report, how much attention does it warrant given all of the noise that surrounds the report, given the hurricanes in the U.S.? It's always going to be important, uh, the, the jobs data, the market is watching it closely. But if you focus on wage growth, though, this this report is not doesn't look very strong, um, uh, does it? Wages, you know, in construction, wholesale, and utility look rather weak. But overall, I still think that it is consistent with the growing economy, with slack in jobs market disappearing. And um, the fallout from hurricanes largely seem to dissipate. And on balance, I don't think that it uh, will contradict, you know, with the picture of the Fed is on track for a rate hike in December. Yeah. And Cameron, your take on it, either from the market's perspective or currencies, uh, bonds, equities. I mean, I, I'm looking at records right now for the Dow, the S&P and NASDAQ and uh, the 10-year unchanged 2.34. Yeah. 
I, you know, I think there's sufficiently mixed signals from the data or reasons to, to assume that it's uh, distorted somehow, that it's kind of easy to look through it for as a bond investor. The headline change in payrolls was weaker than expected by, what is that, uh, 52,000? Uh, but there were 90,000 upward revisions for the previous couple of months. So net-net, you could say that was, that was actually a little bit better than expected. The unemployment rate declined, but that was largely because of a shrinking pool of labor, which doesn't necessarily tell us a whole lot moving forward. And then the wages were clearly weak, driven by the sectors that Anshley mentioned. But even there, I do wonder if there's some sort of distortion that's being captured in the sense that the uh, whole, I had a look this morning at the wholesale trade number, which wages dropped uh, 8%, or it's not 8%, uh, 8 tenths of a percent month on month. That's the biggest decline since the crisis. Now, why would, I mean, and by a huge margin. So why would that happen? Well, obviously, we've had one, one culprit, which is potential culprit, which is, uh, which is the hurricane and the impact of the hurricane and difficulty in adjusting the data. So, you know, I think the default to the market is if you can't really tell, then just do nothing. All right. And I want to talk to be the boundary. I, I, I want to take you both away, perhaps from an area that you're comfortable with, and that is uh, going from facts and hard data into politics. And uh, actually, I just want to give you a moment just to formulate your response. So, Cameron, I'm going to ask you this question. How much can the Trump administration take credit for this month's job number? Uh, I'm sure he will proudly, his administration will proudly tell you that unemployment is dropping, the economy is adding jobs, stock market is at a record. But at the end of the day, how much of this is all about what the Trump administration has done uh, since the start of the year? Well, it's, it's very, very interesting because in terms of what they've actually done, they've done almost nothing in terms of actual policies that help spur the economy. Moreover, there was already a tailwind in a, you know, sort of an eight-year history of consistent job growth, which in a sense, they're just continuing the momentum. They haven't kicked an own goal so far, which I suppose is uh, some sort of victory. All this having been said, there has very clearly been an uptick and a very sharp improvement in the sentiment of businesses. As soon as Trump got elected, business sentiment went through the roof, which I think tells you that businesses in America really, really didn't like Barack Obama. Now, obviously, when you're more confident, you're going to do things a little differently and you might invest a little bit more. So to some extent, Trump can claim a bit of success in the sense that he sold people on this idea that he's competent and that he's, he's business friendly. And they, as long as they believe him, they may act accordingly. So from that perspective, yeah, there's a little bit that you can say, okay, Trump's sales job has, uh, you know, has, has worked. But broadly speaking, the best thing he's done is not to kick an own goal. Uh, and, and your view from London, Angeli, I mean, after all, the president has certainly very much tied his administration to what is happening with the U.S. equity market. So would you, is, is it your sense that that is a fair question to ask? Uh, it is. I mean, I'm inclined to agree with uh, Cameron on that. He boosts sentiment, but at the end of the day, you have monetary policy that has been accommodative. And um, I think uh, that it, it has a, a lot to do uh, with, you know, it it should take credit for the for, for growth we are seeing in the U.S. right now. And it's not just the U.S. that is growing. The global economy is growing, and the U.S. is benefiting from that. But yes, you know, um, I think uh, uh, in terms of sentiment, perhaps uh, President Trump can, 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 you know, 
take credit from this. Yeah. In terms of monetary policy, uh, you, your sense, does a, a, a Powell Fed keep the momentum going? I think he will. Uh, uh, you know, judging from reaction in the market, it's looked like he's a status quo and investors see continuity in the policy. So the backdrop of this, uh, of a gently tightening Fed should remain in place. Uh, for, for me, I I don't think that the, the policy, the monetary policy here is a challenge. The challenge will be more about the regulations. Uh, you know, you, as we know, President Trump ran on Wall Street deregulation platform. Now, how is Powell going to loosen the burden of regulations without losing the benefits? Right. Now, it's, it's worth a watching. Anjali, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Anjali Warachade, Markets Live blogger out of our London newsroom, talking to us about uh, the big U.S. jobs report today. Jobless rate falling one-tenth of one percent down to 4.1 percent, lowest since 2000. Payrolls up a less than expected 261,000 in October. I'm looking at Apple stock right now. It is at a record rallying 3.1 percent, 173.24 on Apple. The YTD number there on Apple year-to-date this stock is up 49.6%. Coming up, are you getting the new iPhone? Will you pay a thousand pounds for an iPhone? We will have more on that topic next as Bloomberg continues. You're listening to The Cable on DAB. I'm Charlie Pellet, and this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow. On Bloomberg Radio. Where is Jonathan Farrell? Off again today. He will be back on Monday. Charlie Pellet uh, for the next 30 minutes as uh, the cable on DAB continues. And we thank you for joining us uh, Friday. And uh, we're looking at higher markets in the U.S. Uh, uh, eyeing records right now for the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ. Quick check of what's happening in European markets. FTSE 100 up today by about one-tenth of one percent. The CAC in 40, CAC Coran out of Paris up by one-tenth of one percent. DAX in Germany up by three-tenths of one percent. In Spain, the IBEX down by about one percent. We have got uh, gold trading lower, six tenths of one percent, twelve sixty-eight. The ten-year at one thirty-second. The yield there two point three four percent. Well, lots to talk about. Getting a new Fed chair. We got the jobs numbers this morning, but I want to focus on Apple right now because Apple shares they are trading at a record, up by three point two percent. We saw long lines outside Apple stores around the world. People waiting to buy the iPhone ten today. The company's most important device launch in just about in uh, in years apple saying it is fixing supply problems that have led to delays and joining us now to talk about apple uh, and where the stock may be heading is joe weisenthal executive editor for news for bloomberg digital co-anchor of what you miss cameron christ stays with us uh, macro strategist at bloomberg Uh, we will start with a very easy question are you guys buying joe weisenthal do you have are you in line do you plan to get the iphone 10 uh look i could see myself getting one at some point I usually do, you know, I am an iPhone user and I get one every, you know, year and a half or something, but I never really feel that much of an urgency to get the latest one. So while I probably could see myself getting one at some point, I definitely am not going to be standing in line or trying to order one right away. Yeah, and I don't want to turn this into an Apple versus Samsung, (laughs) but but I'm curious, though, as to why you feel the need to go for the 10 as opposed to the 8 or 8 Plus. Well, honestly, the only... um, feature besides that I really care about is camera. 
and I like being able to take you know the the better each they in terms of like the upgrade to the camera better uh, dark light quality better resolution and so I always like to have the best camera uh, on the phone. Other than that, I just don't care that much. Yeah, a thousand bucks though. A yeah, thousand. it is a lot. But how much is the eight? I don't know. Like yeah, six hundred, seven hundred. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know it's a lot. But every two years, can I can? It's not the end of the world. Yeah, Cameron, how about you? Well, I made the switch from Apple to Samsung about a year and a half ago, and oh wow. Yeah, you know, to be honest with you. They're, they're both sexy phones, and I don't yeah. really functionally. There's not a whole lot of difference. I I don't like giving my uh, personal details or pictures of myself in sort of skimpy clothing to the cloud. <laughs> so I uh, I uh, from that perspective, maybe I don't need uh, maybe I don't need the the iPhone. And in any case, my sort of Sartre run, once wrote that hell is other people. And looking at these uh, these <laughs> scenes of these Apple you know the Apple stores and these hordes of people, I, I can't think of anywhere in the world I'd rather you know I'd rather not be. Well, let me let me raise the question because this is something that our Corey Johnson has suggested. He he's saying this is all a PR stunt very often by oh, yeah. Apple together. Uh, Joe, is. you buy that right into Oh, totally, I, I, totally. I mean, like, there's actually been some famous economics work done about why don't restaurants that have lines raise their prices? Because you'd think, you know, if there's a big wait, then that means there's a, all this lost surplus value. And so that if you chart, if you raised your prices, you could feed the same number of people on a night and, <clears throat> you know, get more revenue. And it's pretty clear that's not the right move, that the lines pay off. So I think there's no question. And look, Apple is the the king of creating ceremony and buzz. And you walk by an Apple store and it kind of feels like a religious temple. And these are holidays and these are disciples. So from a marketing standpoint, these no other no other brand comes close. And then what I don't get is, you know, my wife put in an order two or three weeks ago whenever, whenever the window opened to get the iPhone. She's, you know, thrilled to get it. Got an email today saying it was going to come basically a week earlier. You know, if you've waited this long for the 10, is another three weeks, four weeks going to kill you? Yeah, I don't get it myself. It reminds me of some of these sort of niche breweries. Uh, you know, in the U.S., where you go and they they have a you know very you know again, as Joe alluded to, is sort of an artificial scarcity, and the fact that you have to wait a couple of hours or three or four hours, or in the case of the beer, or you know all day in the case of uh, the iPhone. It's almost like a badge of honor right, that right. you know I I got it the first day yeah. and I can I can look back and I can tell my grandkids when they're playing there on their iPhone 77s that I got the <laughs> iPhone 10 on the very first day it was released. Yeah, and I I, I respect my wife for you know all of a sudden FedEx or UPS is going to show up to the house uh, you know three or four weeks from now and there will yeah, be the well, iPhone. You can take credit that your wife's not a lemon. Yeah, so there you go. There you go. And just to prove that I'm losing control of the show, I'm just very curious as to the outcome of that study about restaurants and prices. Was there I mean, it's, that's a valid question. Yeah. Why, why not raise prices? Because uh, the additional, I think the buzz from having the lines really pays off marketing-wise. And people don't want to go to the restaurant that, they, they see the restaurant that has no lines and that doesn't appeal to them. I, I am out of touch. If I see a restaurant with no, lines, I'm just I, I, I go I'm next just door. I'm not waiting around. I'm not spending an hour at the bar no, I'm, to I'm, eat. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, there's unless a, I can eat at the bar, I like that. But usually, my wife doesn't want to do. That. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase that time is money. So, in a sense, the the time that you have to waste in the queue, that is the additional cost and uh, of, of eating at the restaurant. Um, because frankly, I would rather pay five bucks more, ten bucks more than waste forty five minutes or an hour. Agreed. Uh, in 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 the queue because uh, you know. 
I get paid more than five dollars an hour. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, so in a sense, you can look at it. There's this there's a phenomenon in economics called the Veblen good, which mm. is essentially a bling factor. Which is the more expensive something is, the more demand there is for it. And in, in a sense, this is the rest. You know, this is the this is an equivalent. Um, the the price of the of the iPhone 10 is very high, and then the added cost of the weight makes it even even more costly, which which in a bling world is uh, you know actually adds to its right, attraction. Right, right, and certainly hasn't hurt Ferrari's business model or that of Gucci either, has it? Uh, apparently not. Yeah, all right. In in terms of the economic implications, how much thought uh, Joe Weisenthal has been given to the fact that the thousand dollars that people are spending on this iPhone mm. is is not going to to malls or yeah. to restaurants or, or or to stuff. I'll be honest, I don't think I read the note, but I think there was an analyst who warned that this could have a marginal impact on uh, holiday spending, uh, that it would pull some money away from it, the timing of such a big thing. So it'll be interesting to watch. There have been quarters over the past several years in which economists have been able to identify some quirk in the data specifically due to uh, iPhone spending. Um, it happens from time to time. You'll see a big boost or a big drop-off. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, yeah an Apple value touching $900 billion today. Uh, Cameron, safe to say that this is at, well, probably not safe to say, but is it a fair question? It, will this be a trillion-dollar company? Well, it seems like only a matter of time. And I, I'm generally pretty snooty about these sort of arbitrary uh, milestones. So I, the, day that it, uh, the day that it hits a trillion, maybe I'll pull a sickie so I don't have to listen to all the fanfare. Joe, trillion dollar uh, valuation. It feels like you know. Isn't there something with stocks where stocks that hit ninety usually no, go to a hundred or something? Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, they split. Sort of that the, was, but that was circa nineteen ninety seven, I think. No, yeah, I just, sort of the Star Wars tractor beam. Yeah, of, it uh, feels like it just feels like it's gonna happen. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it might be. Uh, I mean, it could happen in two weeks. Well, well, think of it this way: the the analyst expectation is for earnings per share to grow almost twenty five percent next year. So the fact that the PE is about 18 means it's actually not that expensive. All right, Apple right now up 3.3% again year to date up 50%, 173.57. Uh, we are looking at a record there uh, for Apple. Coming up, we will have more on what is happening with Apple as the cable without Jonathan Farrow on a Friday continues. I'm Charlie Pellet. We're looking at records right now for US equities, the Dow, the S&P, Nasdaq all pushing higher and this is the cable on DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. And we are back as The Cable continues now on a Friday. Charlie Pellet in for Jonathan Farrow. I love that song, by the way. Uh, we are looking at records here for the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ. We've got the 10-year, the yield there, 2.34%. I want to talk about Jay Powell. Uh, he got the job yesterday, and uh, we continue the conversation now with Joe Weisenthal, executive editor of news for Bloomberg Digital, co-anchor of What You Miss, Cameron Kreiss, macro strategist at Bloomberg. Little market reaction, correct me if I'm wrong, but was was all of this, Joe Weisenthal, because this was all pretty well telegraphed that Powell would wind up getting the job? It seems like it. I mean, I think people had known for a while <clears throat> that he was the favorite. I do think it's interesting, though, like how smooth this has been. I mean, the Yellen Fed era is just not a, we, we all know about the lack of volatility. That's an old story. But even on decision days, just incredible ability to telegraph everything to the point when the news is announced, it doesn't even really cause a ripple. So many times there have been 
FOMC decisions or yelling speeches that do such a great job of not upsetting uh, the market at all. And this just felt like in continuity with that, this theme right now, there's just everything is so telegraphed and baked in and very little of it uh, having any effect anyway. Uh, continuity, yes. Little market reaction. Why make the change? Why did President Trump get rid of Janet Yellen and uh, replace her with Jay Powell? Because he wants to leave a mark. Uh, he wants to make his mark. He he doesn't want to acknowledge that his predecessor did something right. It's you know it's it's very it's atypical by the standards of history. Yellen will have ends up with the shortest tenure since the uh, unlamented um, William Miller in 1978-79, who basically was uh, was a train wreck and you know lasted 18 months. Uh, every other Fed chair has endured for at least two terms, uh, and if memory serves, uh, at least um, two different uh, political parties in charge of the White House. So, yeah. so uh, Trump is atypical in this regard by the standards of history, but you wouldn't expect anything else from the man himself. Yeah, Joe, uh, history will be justifiably and extremely kind to Janet Yellen during her tenure? It seems like it. I mean... I agree with uh, what Cameron wrote earlier, that maybe we have to wait a few years to really say. I mean, if there were some huge imbalances uh, that we ha aren't seeing in the in the market, but that we can definitely trace at this time and we get a big crash in, uh, you know, 2020 or something, then perhaps not. It's hard to... It's hard to see what you would have done differently. You know, the economist uh, John Cochran, who writes a blog, is called the uh, the Grumpy Economist. He had a he basically he's I don't think he's like a huge Yellen fan. I think he's a little bit more of that Chicago school monetarist type. But he said, look, there are so many examples of bad uh, monetary policy decision making throughout history. So many examples of uh, Fed mistakes that just the fact that she didn't make any during her term puts her in the top tier automatically because it doesn't look like she screwed anything. Is perhaps, Joe, the bigger story, not necessarily that Powell got the job, but the fact that Donald Trump has, what, three, four more vacancies to fill at the Federal Reserve? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, it's going to be interesting because the last, you know, Janet Yellen has done a good job and her predecessor, Bernanke, both of them seem to be very into building consensus and they had the stature to build consensus for at times, especially, you know, in the uh, Bernanke's era uh, when he had to push the limits of Federal Reserve policy beyond what people were familiar with. Building consensus was perhaps not as easy, although Yellen had her work cut out for her at times as well. This could be, you know, one of the concerns about Powell, his lack of formal economics education. Could be interesting to see whether he, how well he does at that, how well he convinces his fellow FOMC members to um, come around to his views. And so it'll be interesting to see who he has to work with. On. Yeah, when, when we come back, I want to explore the question uh, surrounding the vice chair and who some possible choices might be there, if you have any names on the top of your head. But uh, we'll focus, too, just on the importance of the vice chair and what that may mean for the Federal Reserve. U.S. equities pushing higher on a Friday. European stocks advancing. FTSE 100 ending the week at 75.60, up by one-tenth of one percent. Uh, we have got the Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ all pushing toward records. The Tenure up 132nd with a yield of 2.34%. The uh, program will continue in just a moment. Again, looking at the Federal Reserve also and at, at uh, taxes. And this is The Cable on DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. 
we've got Charlie Pellet in for Jonathan Farrow. Jonathan uh, should be back on Monday. We have got U.S. stocks uh, trading higher. It is on to the weekend in London right now. FTSE 100 did move higher today, uh, ending the week with a gain of just about one-tenth of 1%, 75.60. Uh, and in the United States, we're looking at oil pushing higher, 55.30 right now on WTI. Brent crude, 61.66. That is a gain of 1.7%. Want to move along to taxes, but just a couple more thoughts about uh, the Jerome Powell, the President Trump's pick uh, to lead the U.S. Federal Reserve. Uh, is it a big deal, Cameron Kreiss, that uh, that he doesn't have a Ph.D.? Ed Yardinis told us that there's already too many Ph.D.s at the Fed. Well, I think that your opinion about whether the Fed chair should have a Ph.D. is directly proportional whether to you yourself have a Ph.D. I mean, there's a rather cynical school of thought that the very academically oriented economists who've tended to dominate the Fed in recent years aren't really qualified to run a lemonade stand in real life, whereas a more practical experience is perhaps uh, perhaps worthwhile. The last chair uh, chairman who didn't have a PhD was Paul Volcker, who admittedly <laughs> did practice economics as a profession, but was you know, I think generally thought of, and history has continued to think of him as the right man uh, at the right time who did a who did a spectacular job. Now, Powell, by all accounts, is a a very clever person. B does have uh, is qualified to run a, a lemonade stand given his years in in private equity and and in in finance. Uh, and and C. Um, does seem to, uh, by all accounts, again, grasp the relevant issues. Uh, and he does have management experience, which I think also helps. You referred earlier to consensus building. Well, if you've, if you've had senior roles in, in the private sector uh, and been successful, uh, that, that says something. And he, the reason he was actually appointed to the Fed uh, board under Obama, a Democrat, is that he uh, basically stood up to Republican congressman and told them to extend the, the debt limit for the good of the country. Now, that that says a lot about the guy, uh, even if he's sort of been under the radar for, for many years uh, in his role at the Fed. It says a lot for the guy and his willingness to sort of sort of not be confined by a label and to, to do what he perceives to be the right thing. Joe, what do you think is going to happen with regulatory reform and the regulatory environment with Powell at the helm? I mean, it seems plausible that at the margins there could be some changes. I'm kind of skeptical that we're going to see any big changes from anyone. And I've all, I've never really like believed that regulation or it all kind of seems like an overblown topic. I don't know. I would imagine we'll see some modest changes, but all the big things that seem to matter are probably in legislation that can't easily be changed. And I don't think there's any real prospect of that moving anytime soon. So I suspect any difference would be possible. All right, let's let's move the conversation along now. Tax reform. What a week this has been, yeah. by the way. I mean, just in a every. It's funny because I don't know about you, Joe, Cameron, people I talk to around here, they're all exhausted. I mean, this yeah. has been an absolutely turbulent week. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe that the whole Manafort thing was this week because that was Monday. Wow. And that you mean, like you mean that thing from ago. like five years ago? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, wow. All right, but when it comes to the tax plan, uh, Joe Weisenthal, just how unified are the Republicans? Are they going to get this across the goal line? It's tough. You know, I always thought they were going to pass health care reform, and they didn't. So, you know, I'm not a very good judge anymore. I also thought Trump was going to pick Yellen, so my radar is just completely blown 
Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be really fascinating because it's interesting who's lining up against it is basically all the people, all the liberals and all the left and the Republican congressman who represents the Hamptons, which sort of tells you how they've constructed this, because it really, you know, if you're like a sort of like professional with student loans and you live in a blue state and you have a house with a million dollar mortgage. Like you're not, you might not love this uh, this tax reform bill. On the other hand, if you live in Texas and you have a house with a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage and you have a construction company, uh, you're gonna you're gonna love this bill. So it's a very it's a well, bill as long very, as it's not residential construction. <laughs> as long as it's not residential construction, you're gonna love this bill. So, uh, you know, it it, it hits people that uh, are not the Repu- the core Republican constituency, and that's obviously by design. That's how politics works but it doesn't give them a lot of room for error because there are a lot of people who are going to be unhappy about it and your thoughts in terms of getting this a done deal yeah well i think it's telling that the uh the national association of realtors is against it the national association of home builders is against it the national federation of independent yeah. business which is a small business uh group is against it basically i mean what i find fascinating about it uh, uh, and again uh, looking at this from a somewhat jaundiced and cynical viewpoint is that it essentially punishes anybody who takes out debt other than real estate companies, which happens to be the uh, hmm. you know the raison d'etre of the Trump organization. Now, that might be a coincidence. I, I would submit to you that it probably is not. Uh, and while reducing excess leverage in the economy is, is a worthy goal, the fact that it's hitting so many people other than the president and his family directly, I think, is uh, is reason for cynicism. Yeah, Joe. Joe, those are some pretty entrenched lobbying groups that yeah. Cameron just referred to. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, like, I to. always thought that things like the mortgage interest deduction were sacrosanct. That no, you're never. It's a lot of people think, oh, it's bad economics. We shouldn't be subsidizing homeownership that this way, and it it creates bubbles, and that's fine. But it's like you're never going to touch it. But they do want to touch it, and it is seen as like one of the things you can't get rid of. But between the increased standard deduction, the lower cap on uh, what you could, you know, there is aren't many people who are really going to have it anymore. And so you're you're um, you're creating enemies in every district in America. And we talked to the NAHB CEO on TV. Uh, I think it was at the end of last week, um, or maybe maybe it was Monday. And he's like, yeah, we're going to fight this in every district. So it's, you know, that's the one thing. It's not just a uh, sort of blue state, red state thing. Although, uh, you know, houses cost a lot less in Nebraska than they do in New York. So for them, it may be a less, uh, less... Less significant change. All right, guys, thank you very much. We are. Where does the hour go on this program? I got to ask that of Jonathan Farrell when he comes back on Monday, and uh, should point out that H and R Block shares they are up today, trading higher by one point two percent. Thank you so much for joining us on a Friday. Have a great weekend. This is the Cable on DAB. Quick check of the markets. FTSE one hundred today advancing by about one tenth of one percent. In the United States, uh, trading still going on with the Dow, the S and P, Nasdaq all advancing. I'm Charlie Pellet. This. This is The Cable on DAB.